This is the Hot Topics podcast from NB Medical. It's Friday, the 21st of February, 2020. My name is Neil Tucker, and I will be taking you through the next 20 minutes or so on the latest news and research relevant to us in primary care. Now, if I sound a bit off today, it's because my shoulder has been absolutely killing me for the last three weeks. This is a guy. Um, No, not caused by a guy. No, this is a gym-induced injury. I think I've just made up a new acronym. You're welcome to use that in work if you like. I started going to the gym about two months ago and already I appear to have wrecked myself. It turns out that even going up to one eighth of the possible weights on the machines is too much for me. It has been quite an interesting experience. I thought I was pretty good at shoulder examinations. You know, I'm feeling in the ACJ. I've got their thumb down to the ground, testing for pain against abduction. I've tested external and internal rotation. I'm considering whether it's OA. My symptoms come on. I have got no clue what is going on with me. I started Googling shoulder anatomy. This is something I have not revisited in a very long time. How often do you think about Terry's minor No, not a lot. Could that be it? I don't know. Could it be subscapularis? I don't know. Could it be my trapezius? I've absolutely no idea. I'm heartened by the fact that regardless, all the treatments are the same. So having tried manning up for the last couple of weeks and failing, I've just had a steroid injection in it. So now instead of impingement pain, I've just got bruising pain. We're going to see how it goes. I'll keep give you a running update on the next podcasts. Now, in this podcast, we're going to have a look at news and uh, coronavirus, of course, has been dominating that once again. We're going to have a look at the new research and coronavirus has been dominating that again. So we're going to try and find something different. And then we're going to have a look at in our more in-depth section, we're going to have a look at big data and computer assisted medicine and some of the new research that's come out in the last few weeks relating to that and how that's going to influence our practice. Now, on to the news. So, coronavirus is starting to die down in the popular media, but actually things have ramped up in the journals with lots of research published over the last few weeks. And I think this is an example of the medical research community at its best. We've got a serious problem. There's been rapid discoveries. There's data published in almost all of the major journals with rapid dissemination of this information around the world, which is really what's needed to try and both understand and therefore contain and treat um, epidemics or potential pandemics. So I think that's done really, really well. And things do seem to be plateauing a bit. So obviously the worst cases have been in China, 75,000 people have been formally diagnosed with coronavirus. And that's uh, likely to be a gross underestimate of the actual number of people who have really had the had the condition. There's been 2,000 deaths, which is obviously awful, but the suspicion was that it could be a lot higher than that. So in some ways, that would be reassuring for people around the world. In the UK, we've had 5,500 people tested now, with I think a very impressive response from the health service uh, around the country. I certainly didn't envy them, but I was almost pleased to see that the first cases diagnosed in the country were in GPs, putting in the public's mind that we are literally at the forefront of illness and epidemics. We are right there in the mix. If the media is to be believed, the people who have tested positive for this they're, they're, have recovered now. I'm not sure if they're still in isolation. If they are, they're probably bored as hell and they may well be listening to podcasts to entertain themselves, in which case, hello. Hello. 
thank you for taking one for the team. I think there's been a very impressive response in the health service around the UK. And actually in my local area, it's been very good as well. I had my first brush as duty doctor yesterday with coronavirus or potential coronavirus, um, thankfully over the phone. And I contacted the local ID team. There's a whole coronavirus hotline that's been set up at the local hospital. A very, very efficient response. The specialist took over the care. They followed up. They phoned the patient. They let me know what was going on. I think it was all very impressive. Elsewhere in the news, the BMA are currently conducting a survey on our opinions about assisted dying. I think this is a hugely important issue, whichever side of the fence you sit on. And I'd absolutely encourage everyone to get involved and complete the survey so that your views can be counted. You'll find the very quick survey on the BMA website. And the big question is whether we as a profession think that we should be helping people die? And if so, how we should be doing that? So this could be physician-assisted suicide where we provide drugs that will end someone's lives, but they have to self-administer, or it could be physician-administered drugs. So everyone will have a different opinion. Personally, I'm quite pro-choice for people to choose about the end of their life, should they wish. Um, could I imagine myself administering medications that will kill someone? No, I can't. I can't picture that in any kind of scenario whatsoever, which is an interesting but common dichotomy that I think a lot of people feel. It's a complex issue. It may have a complex solution. Things may not even change, or at least not for a long time. Regardless, our views are, are crucial to that decision-making process. And then last bit of interesting news I saw was a report on beta blocker overdose in people who have anxiety and depression. And I was surprised to read that there were 52 cases of fatal overdose that had been linked to propranolol in 2017. We, of course, always think about overdose, particularly with antidepressants. We tend to use propranolol as uh, perhaps the safer alternative, a less aggressive um, alternative in people who perhaps have more minor symptoms. But I guess this just gives us a bit of a warning to, uh, that we do need to be mindful about suicide risk, about overdose of these medications and the amount of medication that we're supplying patients. I looked this up on a toxicology website and apparently one gram is a potentially lethal dose can lead to um, ventricular arrhythmias. So things like pulseless VT and then subsequent arrest. And one gram is not that much. That's 25 tablets of 40 milligrams propranolol. So that kind of knowledge does start sharpening our minds a little bit, I think. Now, I'm not going to name names of the website that I read this article on, but it did list a number of possible alternatives that one could use for anxiety management, including diazepam, lorazepam, chlordiazepoxide, pregabalin, trazodone. I had to laugh a little bit. It's like, okay, fantastic. We have got a number of alternatives there that we may wish to also kill people with. It may be better just to do a risk assessment and prescribe fewer pills. So on to our research and we're going to start off with coronavirus because it has been in all of the major journals. And I think one of the most useful articles for us has actually been in the BMJ and they had a retrospective case series published from seven hospitals in China 
and it reported on the clinical features of 62 patients who had been diagnosed with coronavirus from a human-to-human transmission. And what's really interesting about this is that a lot of the common features that we consider an intrinsic part of the disease were actually absent in some of the patients. So for example, only 77% of them actually had any fever within 48 hours. About 80% of them had a cough. About half of those had a productive cough. Headache was in about a third. Fatigue in about 50%. Only two patients developed shortness of breath during the time of admission. And in fact, only one person was uh, admitted to ITU. No one died in this case series. So reassuring that morbidity and mortality appear to be pretty low in this group, but it does indicate that people may not be presenting with the classic features that we've been told to expect. That makes diagnosis very hard. It means that people need to have a very low threshold for actually getting patients tested. Although, once again, I think given the uh, numbers of cases that we've seen in the UK so far, I don't think we need to start stressing about it too much at the moment. A linked editorial fleshes things out a bit more and provides a bit more information from around the world. And it reports that the number of severe cases in formally diagnosed patients has been reported worldwide as about 15%. And in Wuhan itself, the mortality rate has been about 2%, but elsewhere in the world, it's been more like 0.05% or less, which is obviously very reassuring as well. What's also interesting is that the expected level of escalation outside of China just doesn't seem to have happened yet. So they don't really know why this is. Is this effective containment? Could there be some genetic predisposition for the Asian population? We just don't really understand. But the explosion that we were anticipating has failed to emerge, thankfully. Meanwhile, they're also exploring treatment. So Uh, In the New England Journal of Medicine, they're talking about trials which are currently underway that should publish in the next couple of weeks or so, so very, very rapidly, about use of medications such as antiretrovirals, also medications used for Ebola, even um, just simple anti-flu medications that we talked about last time on the podcast. But realistically, that's going to be for people at the more severe end of the spectrum. And of course, we we just don't know whether they're likely to be effective or not yet. Watch this space. The next piece of research that caught my eye is a new piece of research that's just been published online in the BJGP, and this made it into the the wider medical news. It's a new cohort study, and they're just publishing the initial results on essentially screening for CKD in the UK primary care population. So patients over the age of 60 were invited to attend for a renal assessment. So they had their EGFR and ACRs checked. If either was abnormal, they'd be invited back at three months for repeat to check if they really did have CKD. If it was normal on the follow-up, then they'd be classed as having borderline decreased renal function. Patients with existing CKD were also included in the study, but what they were really interested in was the group who'd perhaps been undiagnosed. And the headline figures were that 18% of patients had CKD stage 1 to 5, but around 8% had not had a previous diagnosis, so had been going under the radar. Overall, about half of patients had CKD stage 3 to 5, but it was actually quite difficult to work out from the paper what 
proportion of people had the most, most severe end of the spectrum. And it looks like it's quite a small number. So that really raises the question of, whilst it's good to acknowledge that there are some people who are going undiagnosed with CKD, how much emphasis do we really need to put in this group? Um, what really is the risk for the majority of these patients of um, serious progression of their CKD? How much of this is simply a representation of normal ageing? And if you go on the forums looking at the discussions around the paper, that sort of seems to be the, the most common theme and something that I, I think I subscribe to. So while you can't pick holes in the methodology of the paper, it just kind of calls into question how relevant it is is it for us on a day-to-day basis. And certainly labelling one-fifth of the over-60 population as having abnormal renal function seems quite extreme. It is worth pointing out, though, that this is just the start of this research. So they're going to continue to follow up this cohort over time. And and what we really want to know is about the progression of CKD. This is the really important factor. So what factors in a patient may influence whether they are going to go on and develop and problems with their renal function in their lifetimes and what factors are perhaps protective and we don't need to worry about so much. I think only then will this issue get a lot more attention in the wider GP community. So on to our in-depth section, and we're going to have a little think about the idea of big data, computer-based medicine, and how this is going to affect practice. And this was uh, in my mind for two reasons this week. So firstly, I read this article on the BBC about Amazon and how it came to dominate the world in terms of online sales. And essentially, the reason Amazon is so successful is because it realized the power of data before other companies like it did. So it collected that data relentlessly, it analyzed it, and then it changed based on its findings. Um, And of course, the rest is history. Secondly, we were sat around at our lunchtime meeting yesterday in the practice, and one of the GPs and our practice managers were talking about their Apple Watches. And these are incredibly clever little pieces of equipment. I hadn't realised that they can now do a single lead ECG on your Apple Watch. So it can tell you if you're in sinus rhythm or if perhaps you're in atrial fibrillation. And on the face of it, this sounds like a really neat tool. But make no mistake, Apple, just like Amazon, is harvesting all of their data and there is no bigger market than healthcare. So while we may assume that greater knowledge is good, and I have no doubt that Apple would suggest that it just wants to make our lives healthier and safer, that sounds very much like Amazon, who just want to make our shopping experience, our, our lives, more individually tailored and efficient. And while there's no doubt that these Um, new devices are really neat. We shouldn't fall into the trap of not questioning how accurate the data that they're producing really is. So there's been lots of research published in the last few weeks or months about technologies and um, how they may be able to improve our assessment of patients and guide improvements in healthcare. You'll remember seeing in the popular media a a couple of months ago about a study that showed that AI was more effective than radiologists at identifying breast cancers on mammograms. And that seemed to be a a good study. It seemed to be a valid finding and is perhaps not surprising given the range of ways that human error can be introduced into assessing mammograms, particularly if we just consider kind of brain fatigue and visual fatigue when someone's looked at hundreds of films in a row. 
but success in one study doesn't guarantee success in another. And the BMJ this week have published a really interesting piece of research looking at smartphone apps for the diagnosis of skin cancer. And in their systematic review, they found that the current algorithm-based smartphone apps cannot be relied on to detect all cases of melanoma or skin cancers. And moreover, compared with um, human assessment, they have poor accuracy. Even more terrifying, as the linked editorial talks about, so there are two apps that are currently downloadable in the UK that have CE marks, which would, to the public, imply that they've got some kind of uh, safety and validity behind them. But one of those apps, so the Skin Scan app was evaluated in just one single study, 15 lesions that were assessed, five of them five of them were melanoma and it had a sensitivity of 0%. And then they had a, the second app, which is called Skin Vision, had a better sensitivity at 80%, a specificity of 78%. But when they checked it against expert recommendations, they found that its validity was very poor. So this makes you think about the validity of the Apple Watch findings and can these be relied on? Well, interestingly, there is some data that's been published in the New England Journal of Medicine in November. I may have talked about this on a previous podcast. And essentially, they recruited just over 400,000 patients who were using an Apple Watch and they were monitored for an irregular pulse. So 0.5% of them had an alert flag that they might have atrial fibrillation and it had a positive predictive value of um, 84%. So that does seem pretty good to be fair, but what this study didn't or couldn't look at, and it's going to be a monumental undertaking to actually do, is see how many they missed. So we just have no idea about the sensitivity of this device in this context. There's been a lot of talk about genetics recently, and in the upcoming Hot Topics course, we're doing a piece on direct consumer genetic testing, home genetic tests that you can buy for £150 now and have your whole genome sequenced. There's lots and lots of problems with these tests. But JAMA have just reported on two papers that looked at whether more formal genetic testing can influence people's cardiac risk scores. And it's a seductive idea that someone's genes will be able to give us a much better idea about their actual risk of having a heart attack. It seems to make sense. We know that family history is a very important component of that. But it turns out that actually it doesn't seem to be very useful in conjunction with clinical risk scores. We know that clinical risk scores are already very accurate and they found that for coronary heart disease, the addition of a polygenic risk score to that um, standard clinical risk score did not provide important information. They also looked at coronary artery disease and there the study found as modest, by which it means really small, but it does say statistically significant improvement in the accuracy by adding in polygenic risk scores, but it does call for further research in this area, and particularly given the fact that there's a significant discrepancy between the two linked papers. It does call into question the validity of it. I started to get worried a couple of years ago that GP's days were numbered and we were all going to be replaced by apps and algorithms, but I think the the data shows us how hard it is to get computers to do what human brains can do innately. And of course, fundamentally, humans would normally prefer to talk to a human rather than a robot.
Nevertheless, big data is big business. And of course, we're gathering this data all the time as more people um, buy into these technologies, more data is going to be collected and perhaps these tools will become more accurate. Make no mistake, healthcare is going to be a huge battleground for companies. It is no coincidence that Amazon, I think this is just in the US at the moment, but it has developed a pharmacy branch for its website. Soon you'll be able to ask Alexa to send you some medicine, they'll fly it over with a drone. We as medics and as scientists always need to question the validity of um, some of this data. I've got a very, very good friend who used to be a GP who's now a data scientist. So he retrained and his role as a data scientist is basically to find solutions for problems for businesses using technology, using computers, programming, algorithms and the like. He's recently been tasked with using technology to assess the level of tiredness in people. And uh, there's devices that can measure your pupil size, your skin temperature, loads of different factors about physiology, but nothing is as accurate as simply asking someone, do you feel tired? Now, lastly, future medicine. And this is an interesting device that's come out of South Korea. It is a needleless Botox device, and it's been developed for people with hyperhidrosis. So about 5% of the population apparently have excessive sweating. And of course, one of the treatments is, uh, is Botox, where other treatments fail. But that's pretty unpleasant having injections of Botox into the palms of your hands or into your armpits. And so they've developed this device, which basically is a high powered jet, which shoots Botox into the skin. It's apparently much less painful than having injections. It seems to be very, very effective. I don't like needles, so I love the thought of this device, but I can't help think about its abuse potential. We're going to have a lot of patients coming in going, I've got really sweaty palms. They get prescribed one of these devices and they come back in a few weeks time looking 10 years younger, having rubbed it all over their faces, but barely being able to talk because they can't move their mouths. As that says in the paper, more studies will be required. And perhaps they should focus a little bit on the safety of use in other bodily areas. So that's it for today. Go forth into the world, brave the weather, brave the winds, the floods, go and save the lives of your patients. I mean through medicine. I don't mean through picking them up in some kind of dinghy. And you can find us as ever on Twitter at GP Hot Topics at Dr. Neil Tucker. Um, you can find us on the website, mbmedical.com. And we'll be back in two weeks with another podcast. Have a great day. Bye.